It is out of this time period, three groups within Judaism begin to develop. The groups that we know as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, they begin to rise up. And they begin to appear in the historical records. We don't know exactly their origins. We don't know exactly where they came from. We don't fully understand how they came into existence. It's just they start popping up in the historical records. And they're talked about as if they're already there, already existing. But we know that they come into existence at this time period. And we know a little bit of the things that shape them. So that's what we're going to talk about now. The Pharisees seem to start off as a group of people called the Hasidim. The Hasidim means the pious ones. And these seems to be a people of anti-Hellenism, a group of men that basically said that we need to maintain Jewish purity above all else, all other things. And they were very committed to the teaching of the Torah, the law. They're very committed to the ritual purity taught in the law. They're very committed to the orthodox teachings of who God is, of salvation, of righteousness and purification and atonement and sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. They're probably as close that you're going to get to the, the Jews of the First Testament and that mosaic law kind of a sense that you're going to find in this time period. They were passionately devoted to this, and their main purpose was, we do not want to go into, back into exile. And we do not want to stray away from pleasing and living righteously before Yahweh. And so they became very adherent to the Torah, and they began to devote themselves to stopping Hellenism, stopping Hellenism of Israel. Now, obviously, this, they jumped immediately on board with Mattathias. They joined Mattathias, and they, they, they seemed to be one of the major backings to Mattathias and the Maccabean Revolt. And they seem to not just be pious ones and a strict pacifism um, righteousness. They, they took up arms in order to maintain the piety of Israel, in order to stop Hellenism. And they were a big part of the revolution. And so this seems to be the first example of the Hasidim. They might have been growing gradually before the Maccabean Revolt and just really came into power and influence in the midst of the Maccabean Revolt and then maintained that power and influence afterwards. Or they might have just really just popped on the scene right at the Maccabean Revolt. But that's the Hasidim. So they stood firm with them. However, they acquiesced to Simon. And when he gained their political independence, they really jumped on board with them. They really thought that he gaining Israel's political independence from the Greek mindset and the Greek powers that this was their victory. They had finally stopped Hellenism. The Maccabean Revolt had won, and they were now finally free. When Jonathan took and made himself king and priest, that seems to be where they split with him. And they, they basically rejected this, and they walked away, and they saw him as a power-hungry despot, and they broke their ties with the Hasmoneans completely. Now, this did a couple of things. They lost a lot of their political power and influence by breaking away from the Hasmoneans. But they also showed their, their unwillingness to jump on the bandwagon and their moral compromises, which gained a lot of respect from among a lot of the Jews. A lot of the Jewish people, I mean, you know how you hate it when like, you really are committed to a cause and you believe in this cause, and the minute they get power, you find out they're just throw everything out the window for the sake of keeping power and you feel betrayed. 
And so even though they lost a lot of political power and influence as a result of breaking ties with the Hasmoneans, they gained a lot of traction among the everyday normal people who did not want to be morally compromised. And, didn't, and of course, most people, and remember there's no middle class in the ancient world, most people are the poor, and the wealthy Hasmoneans are never, ever going to think about the poor or the everyday normal person or consider them in any kind of ways. So the Hasidim became the, the everyday normal people's way of staying together and unified and their Jewishness and their anti-power and corruption of the Hasmoneans. It is at this point that they seem to be, start to become known as the Pharisees. They are renamed as the Pharisees. And we don't exactly know what the word Pharisees means, but it, the best guess is that they're the separatists. They're separatists. And so they probably have changed their name because they want to be known as we are separate from the Hasmoneans. We are separate from anything that is corrupt in Judaism and the power and the elite. They adhered strictly to the law and the Torah and built up a body of interpretation of the Torah known as the Mishnah and Talmud. Now, if you've ever done a serious study in Luke or the Gospels, um, the Talmud and the Mishnah pop up a lot. And basically the Talmud was the what was commentaries on the law and it basically helped you better understand the law so there's a whole bunch of rabbis and they would say well i think the law interpretation is this or the law interpretation is this and so this talmud began to raise up and it was basically a collection of commentaries so think about modern day commentaries and think of that way except this was a pretty close canon and it was very it was really big it's about wider than my arm span but it was very much close. And it got closed at a certain point, and it became the commentary. Now, the Mishnah became kind of an interpretation of the Talmud. And a lot of these scribes, once the, the elder scribes, the, the founding father scribes, had basically made a lot of interpretations of the law, the, the later generations of scribes and Pharisees didn't really add their own. They would just talk about what did this rabbi mean when he said that. <laughs> and it became less of, I'm going to add a new interpretation, or I'm going to add a new understanding, or maybe I have a different idea of what this scripture means. And it became more of like, what did Rabbi Goldstein mean by this? And they would talk more about his interpretation. And so a lot of people would just say, well, you've heard Rabbi Goldstein say this, and but Rabbi um, whatever says this, and Rabbi says this, and this Rabbi says this, and there you go. And that would be the teaching session. And this is why Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it said, meaning rabbi this and rabbi this and rabbi said all this and that kind of stuff, but I say to you, and he would interpret the law. And everybody was like, whoa, where did this guy came from? He speaks with an authority that we have never heard ever because nobody ever said, I say scripture says this. They just basically quote all these rabbis and then let you know what they say. And so Jesus spoke with an authority that the everyday normal people had never heard. Because for a couple hundred years, it was just always this rabbi, that rabbi, that rabbi, that rabbi, that rabbi. There, end of lesson. And <laughs> you just got all the views, but nobody tried to merge the views. This is also the body of writing that basically developed all of those buffer laws. So remember, with the laws said, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. But the Jews are like, what is work? I think work is tying knots. Because that is work. And if you spend all day tying knots, that's going to be a lot of work. But you have to tie two knots for your sandals to get up and go to work in the morning or to go to Sabbath. 
or the, the synagogue. So we'll say two knots is not work and three knots is work. And after that, you're violating the law. Well, what, what is work? Work is walking. Well, everybody lives within a mile or two of the temple. So we'll say that's not work, but anything more than that is work. What is work? It's harvesting. So even if you grab some grain off of a wheat stalk and just throw it in your mouth, that's work because you're technically harvesting. And I remember when Jesus' disciples did that and they're like, ah, why are you doing Jesus? Like, what the heck? It's just grain coming off of a stalk. So they formed this whole system of laws. I like to explain it this way. So you know how you don't want your kids to be playing in the street because they might die and getting hit by a car. So you're, the rule is they can't play in the street, but you've got that little strip of grass in a lot of neighborhoods between the sidewalk and the street, and there's nothing wrong with playing that grass. That's not technically unsafe, but you might say don't go past the sidewalk because if they're like kind of oblivious or a little bit rebellious and they like go out the sidewalk into the grass, at least they're not in danger zone about ready to die. And at least you can catch them quick enough and say, no, 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 come back. And you can give them some minor consequences and punishments for disobeying you by going to the grass to keep them understanding that this is a danger zone. But there's nothing exactly morally, inherently, or dangerous about going in the grass. And that's what they did. They created these buffers. We don't really want to violate the law because if we violate the law, we'll go back into exile. We don't want to go back into exile. So we'll create the system of laws around it to kind of like the idiot lights on your dashboard. Your car's about ready to break down, your car's about ready to break down. And so it helps you like just yourself before that moment happens. The problem is with generation after generation after generation, by the time we get to Jesus, the Pharisees have pretty much have seen their law as equal to God's law. And they cannot distinguish between the buffer and the actual law of God anymore. They hold their law as just as authoritative and just as much as the word of God as God's law himself because they've become convinced that that's exactly what God meant. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. So you need to understand the Pharisees were good people. They started off as very righteous and very moral. And you have to understand too that the people loved them. The only way that the people knew what the law meant and how to live righteously came from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were your Sunday school teachers. They were your pastors. They were your commentators. And you respected them greatly. And, and when Jesus comes along and speaks harshly against the Pharisees, most people would be like, what? This would be like somebody coming in and speaking against your hero political party that just got voted in or didn't get voted in or whatever. You'd be like, what? You can't say that about them. They're going to save us. Now, hope, I know most of you don't think that in this room, but we know. And you'd just be horrified. How could you say anything bad about these people? They're going to bring hope and change and make things great again, all this kind of stuff. And, and you, a lot of people in America would think of that. Or even your pastor and say, oh, your pastor's so full of crap. He has no idea what he's talking about. You'd be like, what? I'm a Christian because he led me to Christ and everything I know is because that's how Jesus would have been interpreted. They're not the bad guys. We grow up thinking they're the bad guys, but that's only because we have Jesus. Pre-Jesus, they're not the bad guys. And they start off well-intentioned. And probably when Jesus, if Jesus would have come on the scene at this moment, he probably would have stood right there with them. But the problem is they became compromised and corrupted over time as the Pharisees gained more and more power. They believed in salvation was found in the fact that they were Jewish and that Yahweh had given them the Torah. We have often been taught that the Pharisees believed that salvation was through works. They did not believe that. There's no evidence of that anywhere in the Bible at anywhere. 
Because everybody knows in Judaism you cannot save yourself through works. I mean, you just look at the law, and it was very clear that you cannot save yourself through work, law. That is actually a misunderstanding of Martin Luther, and in German, Luther is actually Luther. So Martin Luther came along, and he was so opposed to the works-oriented salvation of the Catholic Church, and that became such an obsession to refute that and oppose it that it dominated everything that he thought about, and he actually began to interpret Scripture that way. So anytime he saw anybody that was not about faith-oriented salvation, he immediately interpreted them as the Catholic Church. In fact, in his commentaries, he says, the Pharisees are the Catholic Church, and I am Jesus, like appointed one. And th this is a problem. And we're all kind of guilty of this different degrees, where we read our culture and our views into the text, and we interpret it that way. And it's really saying nothing about America or the Catholic Church in any kind of way. But because Luther was so influential in scholarship in those early days of the Catholic Church, or the, post, the, the Reformation, the post-Catholic Church, he has shaped the Christian way of thinking of the Pharisees for pretty much since then. But all scholars pretty much are arguing that, the, that now that we've dove in and we're now like getting a better understanding, because we've also discovered a lot about the Pharisee system. We've discovered a lot of writings that Luther didn't have through the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we have a better understanding of the Talmud and the Mishnah, and pretty much every scholar rejects its works-oriented salvation kind of an idea. Where you fit on the spectrum depends on who you are, and now they just like to debate where on the spectrum you are. But we now know that the Pharisees and the Jews did not believe that works saved them. They believed that being chosen by God is what saved them. And that by being ethnically Jewish, they were saved. And that by having the law, they were saved. The fact that God came to them and said, You are my people, and here is my law. And he gave it to them and no other ethnic group in all the world. That is what saved them. Now, they then were very works-oriented because you had to prove that you were ethnically Jewish. You had to show that you were ethnically Jewish. So you, you, a duck quacks and a duck waddles. So if you are saying you're a duck, you better act like that. So they very much were adhering to the law because they didn't want to be punished by God, and you kind of had to live the law to make sure you looked Jewish. This is why the Pharisees said, thank God that I'm not a dog, a Gentile, or a woman because they haven't been born that way. And this is also why Jesus says, you think being descendants of Abraham saves you or makes you chosen? God can make descendants out of Abraham out of these rocks. And so what he, he, he was even refuting that. Like, you think salvation is by the fact that you come from Abraham. Not at all. If God wants to make descendants and ethnic people out of rocks, he can do that. This is about faith. They believed that if you were not Jewish, and you wanted to be saved, you had to jump through all these hoops to become Jewish. It wasn't about necessarily obeying the law perfectly. It was about making yourself look Jewish. That's why circumcision was so important, and the Sabbath, and, and dressing a certain way, and talking a certain way, because you were changing your cultural ethnic identity to begin to look like you were Jewish. So if they had a certain haircut, if you're not a Jew, you better get that haircut. If they dress a certain way, you dress that way. So you changed your identity. You didn't try to become perfect and obey the law. And this is what the Pharisees taught, that salvation was through being Jewish, acting Jewish, 
living Jewish and being given the law and maintaining the law. And this is what they taught and it became the predominant view among the Israelites in the nation of the Jewish people. They then believed that their obedience to the law would usher in the Messiah. They did not believe that obedience to the law would save them. They believed that obedience to the law would then bring them culturally to the point where the Messiah can now come. The Messiah would not come, God would not send the Messiah if they weren't living righteously. And this is found in Zechariah. Remember Zechariah, they said, when is the exile going to be over with? And God spoke through Zechariah and says, when you're faithful. So they took that so seriously and said, faithfulness to the law does not save us. Faithfulness to the law brings the Messiah. And that's what they were really pushing at, was that that was their view. So they were very messianic oriented and that they need to usher this in, where he would establish a new Jerusalem. Their teachings of the Torah connected the Jewish people who looked to them as leaders in the faith. By far, the vast majority, over 90% of the Jewish people, the everyday normal people, would have identified with the Pharisees. They would have identified with their teachings, their beliefs, and even admired them and followed them. Most people would want to be a Pharisee. In fact, they carry the idea the firstborn would become priest. Remember, the firstborn of every Levitical family becomes a priest. So this idea, if you were the firstborn of a non-Levitical family, you didn't have the ability to be a Levi or a priest in any kind of way because you weren't a Levite. However, if you're the firstborn of Benjamin or Judah or Asher or Gad or Dan or whatever, you could possibly be the disciple of a Pharisee. And so you would go around and you would present yourselves to the Pharisees and try to show them your knowledge of the Torah and that kind of stuff. And the Pharisee would pick you along with 12 other people. And the Pharisee or the rabbi would take you and 12 other people, or 11 other people. They would have 12 disciples to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. You have no more, no less, because there was only 12 tribes. Remember, technically, there were 13 tribes. So the rabbi was the 13th one. And so he would lead you. And you would become his disciples so that you could eventually become a Pharisee one day. And most scholars believe that Peter and James and John probably had been selected as a Pharisee, but then got rejected early on and didn't make the cut. And that they weren't actually able to become Pharisees for whatever reason. And so then Jesus comes along and grabs them and says, but I'll take you. I'll take you. Because this isn't about your intelligence or your worthiness. This is about me just merely choosing people. This seems to be the origin of the Pharisees. The Sadducees. The Sadducees are even more obscure. We have really no idea what their name even means in any kind of a way. But they first appear as the party supporting and advising the Hasmoneans from John Hyrcanus I onward. So they support... And the first time we see them on the scenes, they might have been a group of people who created, who came into existence in reaction to the Pharisees. So when the Hasidim were connected to the Hasmoneans, and then the Hasmoneans went all like politically corrupt, and they broke away and renamed themselves the Separatists, the, the, the people left over who were like, I don't see a problem with their, their Hellenism. I don't see a problem with having power probably became a group um, just by being the leftovers. And then they gave themselves the name the Sadducees. This creates a two-party system in Israel, which kind of makes sense because 
We really like two-party systems and as human beings and that kind of stuff. And our two-party system is based on the Greek and Roman form of government. And these people are coming up out of the Greek culture and that kind of stuff. So they have this system here. So they're supporting the Hasmoneans. The Sadducees were extremely wealthy, aristocratic Jewish families. So they did not relate to the everyday normal people. They were completely out of touch with them. And they would be the people like tweeting things and like expecting everybody in America to relate to them. But most of America is like, what the heck? You live in a mansion with a swimming pool and you have all these cars. How in the world can you even say that you know what suffering as a impoverished person is? And they would feel completely disconnected. But thankfully, there was no tweeting back then. So there wasn't as much of a divide. They eventually, when the Roman Empire came into power, they associated with the Roman Empire. And they immediately connected the Roman Empire. And they immediately became the mouthpiece of the Roman Empire to the Jewish people. And so they were highly wealthy, highly governmental officials, aristocrats, celebrities, all that kind of stuff. Because of this, they were largely hated by the most, most of the Jews. And they were largely hated, not necessarily for their political views or necessarily for their religious views, but just by the fact that they were the less than 1% that were extremely wealthy when the vast majority were poor because, like I said, there was no middle class in the ancient world. So the divide between the Jewish people and the Sadducees was much greater than anything that we can relate to in this time period since we actually have a middle class. The Sadducees accepted the Torah, and that was it. They held to the first five books of the Bible, and that was it. That the Pharisees embraced all of the First Testament that we know of it today. The Sadducees believed in the Torah. And they held to the Torah. They held the law, even though they didn't really obey most of the law because it wasn't politically or convenient for them. But they rejected all the prophets. They rejected the idea of the supernatural realm and angels. They rejected the idea of the spirit going into some spiritual realm after death. And they completely rejected the idea of a resurrection. And so they were just strictly the Torah and the legal layout of the Torah. And that was pretty much it. They believed in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the stories. And they believed in the creation account. They believed in Yahweh as sovereign over all things. And a God that was transcendent. But beyond that, they denied all these other things. And this is why when you notice Jesus' teaching, this is important because when you notice Jesus' teaching, he deals with them in different ways. When the Pharisees come at him and they're refuting him and arguing with him, Jesus, he, he goes to the prophets, he goes to Deuteronomy, he, he goes to the Psalms, he even talks about the spiritual realm and all this kind of stuff, and he refutes the Pharisees. But when he comes to the Sadducees, he only uses the Torah, and he only uses the book of Deuteronomy. He only spoke from what they thought was valid. And this is kind of the thing that I think this is the lesson for us. A lot of people will quote a lot of passages from the Bible to try to prove atheists wrong. The problem is the Bible, if atheists don't believe in the Bible, then you're just quoting something that's not authoritative to them. So they're like, whatever. And so you need to use what they think is authoritative, science. And there's plenty of science to refute evolutionists and, and the atheists. And so then once they accept that and realize, oh, wow, there maybe is a legitimacy to a god, and they begin to maybe realize maybe the Bible has something to say, then you can begin to quote that. And Jesus knew his audience, and he only dealt with that. That's also why the Sadducees come to him and say, oh, Jesus, we'll show you how stupid your teaching is. 
let's talk about how dumb the resurrection is. Let's talk about a woman who was married and her husband died, and then she remarried and he died, and she remarried and he died, she remarried and he died, and then she died and she went to heaven. Who's going to be her husband? We're just showing you how stupid and dumb this all is. And that's why Jesus went to the to refute them. He knew his audience, so that's the only thing they held to, and they did not believe in the afterlife. So in that sense, they really believed that this life was it. So there's no reason. See, if, when you believe in the afterlife, you can, you can die to self a lot easier. And you can, you can stick to your moral convictions and allow the world to persecute you and allow yourself to go through suffering, knowing that there's something beyond, something far greater after this. But when you don't believe in the afterlife, you're going to make compromises. There's nothing for you to hold on to, to get you through suffering, to get you through persecution. And so why would you suffer for moral convictions when there's nothing after this life? And so the Sadducees very much believed this is the only life we have. Therefore, we need to make the best out of it. Therefore, work with the Romans, work with the Greeks, do things well. That brings us to the Essenes. The Essenes were very conservative, like borderline Amish and the way that they did things. The Essene movements reacted to the Hellenization of Judah, and they actually reacted against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They believed the Pharisees had compromised just as much as the Sadducees had, and they were completely opposed to the high priests um, becoming non-Levitical people. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. When the non-Levite was made the high priest, they pretty much said, we're done. They pretty much had this idea that like all of Judaism and all the Jewish people have gone to hell in a handbasket and there's no hope for them. We're going to completely withdraw from this culture 100%. And they went out into a desert, way out into the desert, to this desert community called Qumran. And they built this community called Qumran. Now there's some scholars that debate whether they're Qumran or another desert community. But in my opinion, desert community, desert community, what's the difference? So they went off in the desert community, and they lived next to the Dead Sea. And if you've ever seen pictures or gone to the Dead Sea, it is barren desert. It's like you can live, when you breathe the, in, the, in, the midst, in the middle of summer, and you're in the desert, and you're breathing, you, within minutes you can feel your lungs and all the moisture being sucked out of your body. This is like the Siberia for the Israeli soldiers in their train, training ground. Where Russia sends you to Siberia to become a hardened Russian soldier, you go to the Dead Sea area to become a hardened Israeli soldier to be able to take anything. They lived there, and they lived life there. They didn't just go there and train there for a couple of months. They lived there. And they went off, and they were really obsessed with a monastic life. And they separated themselves from the culture. They went out in the desert. They were very much minimalist and their, their, their technology and their comforts and all that kind of stuff. And they, now most of the leaders remained celibate. They would become what we would think of as a monk. And they became incredibly celibate. They would not take on wives. They did not believe that the Bible taught against marriage like the Catholics did, as far as priests go, not everyday normal people. They just believed that they needed to dedicate themselves to God and that they were going to dedicate themselves to a God to a higher level, knowing that family makes it harder to spend time with God. 
and to be devoted to them. However, there were many people within the Essene community that were married and had kids. And so kids were constantly around in the community and they would often take orphans on. The Essenes were known for taking all the orphans. If you became orphaned and most people in Israel um, could not or maybe would not take you, just like in any culture, the Essenes would take you. And it became known that orphans would be welcomed there, that many orphans would make the journey there, or other groups of people would help an orphan make it to the Essenes. And so many of the people, the law, even though they didn't have as many married people who um, had children, they made up for that by taking a lot of orphans. And so that's how they kept their population going and even growing tremendously. They're very dedicated to the Torah and all the law. They're very dedicated to the prophets. And they are probably the closest to what you and I, we would feel more theologically comfortable with the Essenes and their theological views than probably anybody else. We can kind of relate to the Pharisees in a lot of ways and agreement with them. But even if you get into the Pharisees' interpretations of things, it's, it's very legalistic, very... Eh, most of us may not be comfortable with that. But most of us would be comfortable probably with the Essenes. And the Essenes had the most highly developed concept of the Messiah. They had the most highly developed concept of a Messianic king who would also be a high priest. And they even talked about things about him dying as for, as for the need for salvation some kind of self-sacrifice. It's not really prevalent there. It's kind of hinted at as what if, but they're more likely to recognize and accept the Messiah than any other Jewish group. Now, I'm not saying they were all like totally perfect and everything was great about them and all that kind of stuff, because there's so much that we don't know about them, and every group has its problems, no matter what time you're in. So I'm not saying like they were like totally perfect and did everything right. I'm just saying, they seem to be the ones that we most relate to, and they had the most highly developed, most accurate concept of a mess, what the Messiah would be. They also were very committed to the copy of Scripture, the Torah, and the, the First Testament. And they became convinced that copying the Bible, remember the Bible for them was the First Testament, accurately was more important than quickly. And so one scribe, would spend a very long time, could spend months just copying the scripture letter by letter by letter by letter until they had a full copy. Once they had a full copy, they would roll it up and put them in these jars. And then depending on whether they distributed it back to Israel or not or kept it in safekeeping, all had to be do with how many copies they had and da-da-da-da. We don't fully understand their system completely, but we know they copied it. So they came to exist. They did this faithfully. Eventually, fast forward through the time of Christ, he comes in around the 30s, he dies in the late 30s, then you get to the 70 AD, and 70 AD the the Romans are like done with the Jews, and they destroy the temple and burn it down, and then that creates a lot of Jews died in that, and then fast forward to 135 AD. 135 AD, which is about 100 years after Jesus, the Romans have finally had it up here to the, the Jews, and they were completely done with them. And a group of people called the Zealots, which we'll talk about later, started this revolt against the Romans. And the Romans just began to go in, and they began to just massacre everybody in Israel. And so, so many people got massacred that the rest of the people fled for their lives. And this fleeing out of Israel because of the Roman massacre that was going all throughout Israel is what led to the great Jewish dispersion. 
throughout the entire world. And this is the time period that you now have all these Jews showing up in Austria and Germany and, and going into even to Russia and all this kind of stuff, which is going to lead to what we know as modern day, the Jewish community, who they're, they're just all over the world. And you're like, how in the world did they, they were so tight here for so many thousands of years, but yet we know that there's Jews in Poland and Romania and Germany and Russia and all these places, and even all the way down to Africa, there's a very tight Jewish communities down there, and it came from this period in 135. They'd completely dispersed them, or they ran for their lives, basically. And then because Israel was largely vacant, a lot of the Arabic tribes decided to move in because they were growing in numbers and now there's this vacant land and the, the Romans even purposely settled the Arabic people there to prevent the Jews from coming back and so the Arabic people ended up living there and then they ended up getting converted to mostly Islam most people did in the, the 500, or 600s and 700s AD and then that's why when Britain came in and took over the land of Israel through their colonialism and imperialism and then after World War II, England felt very bad that they were, well, a lot of Jews were fleeing to England to escape the Holocaust, and England was like, go back, we don't want you. And then when they realized what was really happening, they felt really guilty, and, they, and the British mandate in 1948, they said, here, we'll give the land to you as a, we're sorry for what we did to you. And then the Arabic people are like, well, we've been here since 135. And the Jewish people are like, yeah, but we were there before that and got kicked out, and Welcome to a hot mess of politics. So that's kind of a nutshell idea where that came from. But back to the thing, they basically saw what was happening because they lived out in the wilderness. They saw like the, the, the cities burning to the ground and they knew they were next. They knew they were next. So they started taking all these scrolls and hiding them in pottery and shoving them way, way high up in caves. And then the, 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 the Jews, the Romans came in and massacred them all. And all the Essenes died pretty much in a massacre. And then years later, in 1948, after some shepherd boy was throwing rocks up in the caves after World War II, and he heard pottery crack, and he crawled up in it, and he discovered these scrolls, and he didn't know what they were because he doesn't read Hebrew and all that kind of stuff, and they're falling apart. But everybody knows in Israel, when you find something that looks really old, you sell it on the black market. You can make a lot of money for your family and pay for a lot of bills. So you sell it on the black market. Some are, and every archaeologist knows you spend a lot of time on the black market buying things because that's where a lot of good discoveries are. So this archaeology found, archaeologist found it, and he tracked it back to the boy. The boy showed him the cave, probably for a price, and we discovered all these caves and thus the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls had revealed to us, it was the most, the largest cache of scripture that we'd ever had and the oldest cache. And the Dead Sea Scrolls did two things. One, it showed us the Bible we did have was absolutely accurate. It was absolutely accurate. That, 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 that everybody else had done such a good job. But it also fine-tuned our understanding way more because these guys were OCD perfectionists. The Dead Sea Scrolls, even the atheists, considered it one of the greatest archaeological finds and, and when it comes to writing and knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And it was also those writings that pretty much silenced every atheist of whether the Bible we had today was the real Bible. Now, many atheists will say, well, how can you trust that they were telling the truth when they wrote it? But 
nobody argues anymore that the Bible has been miscopied except for the media. But as far as scholars go, it, it, it put all those are it buried them all. Every argument that was buried after the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's thanks to the Essenes. The Essenes gave us that accuracy. It also reduced a lot of doubts in the Second Testament because many people were willing to admit, wow, if the First Testament was copied with such precision and the same kinds of people did the Second Testament, then we can kind of maybe give it a little bit more credence just by that transference. We also believe that one of these Essenes, because they lived a rugged lifestyle on very minimalist food and diets, one of these Essenes came out of the wilderness and began to preach to the Jews, and most people believe that John the Baptist was an Essene. He came out of the wilderness. Remember, he was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were very old, so there's a very good chance that they died when he was very young, and he doesn't seem, he seems to have this orphanage kind of a background, and he came out of the wilderness, he's dressed like an Essene, he eats like an Essene, and his understanding of scripture theologically, when he's preaching the coming kingdom and the Messiah, and the fact that he recognizes Jesus so quickly and talks about him as a lamb, okay, and you're like, well, yeah, God could have revealed this to him, yeah, but the fact that he was so open to the Messiah as a lamb, that's Essene-like language. That's Essene-like theology. And so he might have been an Essene himself. So we have him, the Essenes, to thank for John's discipleship to make him ready to prepare the way for the Messiah in that kind of sense. Hopefully the world of the Gospels is starting like, okay, this is a little bit more recognizable. But now we're going to start recognizing things more and more. So these groups grow up in reaction. 